in 1 John chapter a 2 at the end. So we'll, we'll start in uh, 25. Chapter 2, verse 25. That's... that's this is the promise. Yeah, this is the promise. Um, so we're... Oh, that's 23. I see. Okay. So... Yeah, it's fine. This is the promise to which he himself made to us eternal life. So that's our focus, right? Because that is the promise. If you believe, you will have eternal life. If you believe, you'll have eternal life. Forgiveness of sins is that which, you know, is predicated. We, we have to have forgiveness of sins to have eternal life. It precedes it. It's not the main point. Without eternal life, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Woe to us, we're among all people most, most miserable and stupid for, for caring. Because all it would mean, as Romans 5, 10 and so forth says, is that the death of Jesus pays for your sins. It keeps you out of the wrath of God. It keeps you out of hell. But it doesn't give you eternal life. Right? The resurrection of Jesus gives you eternal life. And the promise from Jesus wasn't just, I'll forgive your sins and then leave you on earth, still an enemy of God, from your part, not from his, right, in your heart, still not loving him, still not ready for heaven, still not prepared, still not lovable from a intimate standpoint, to say, as to say, from a relational standpoint. Because you would be lost and still have a soul that was of the quality of Satan. And so God could not commune with you in a meaningful way, nor would he want to. And he would, but he couldn't send you to hell or kill you either. You'd be stuck eternally, reconciled to God, but with no relationship with him. Right? So he says the promise was eternal life. Now he's going to talk about this a little bit. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing, <laughs> the right? The Messiahship or the, the Christhood, which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. You say, what does that mean? That means... Though I might teach, you are taught from the Word and from the Spirit. Um, it's really interesting, you know, when you sit down and you take, have someone read the Scriptures. Uh, so, you know, someone this week was here, and we uh, read through this a while back, and they were like, what does this mean? I said, well, have you, you noticed you're teaching you? All I'm doing is helping you teach you? I said, really, you don't need me to teach you. I'm just showing you that you could have slowed down and taught you a long time ago <laughs> if you just read it slowly. And, and I'm just helping you with some Greek words, a little history. But for the most part, I'm slowing you down and asking you questions so you will teach you. And so really, I'm having you teach me by reading it and talking it through. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's what kind of happens. That is what happened. Because you have eternal life, you basically teach yourself and the Holy Spirit teaches you ultimately. The gift of teaching doesn't mean I'm somehow accomplishing it in you. You are accomplishing it in you because it depends on how you receive it. 
If you seek to believe that what you read, you will teach yourself and the Holy Spirit will affirm that and you will be solidified in truth. The teacher can only teach. I cannot be the one who somehow translate the teaching to meaningful information to you. You have to do that. That's why often you'll see people who love that which is taught and those who don't, you know, the people who don't, they don't have an anointing, this new spirit, an anointed spirit abiding in them and therefore they can't be taught. They can only hear teaching. They can hear good teaching, but they can't be taught, right? Jesus said, my word has no place in you. It cannot abide in you because there was nothing inside of the person to receive it. There was no spirit there that could link to the word of God and receive the word of God. So he says this. Now, little children abide in him, verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Yeah, it'd be a bummer if you're, you're living a more melancholy life or a casual, uh, casually approaching your, your maturity in Christ. Be a bummer if he comes and at that time now you're ashamed. And there would be a sense of shame that you're not pursuing him at a high level. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. Now we get into this concept of born. This is a very important concept. He's going to expand upon this. So he says, see how great the father's, uh, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us. How great a love has he bestowed on us? This is how great. That we would be called, what? Children of God. Oh, and by the way, and such we are. We are children of God. He's not just called that. Last night I was talking to somebody and he says, yeah, God views us this way. I said, no, no, God made us this way. God didn't view us justified. We are justified. We are righteous. Spiritually. He views our flesh that way because of the blood of Jesus. It covers it. But our spirit has been made righteous. And such we are his children. We're not just called as children. We are his children from a spiritual place. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. That's why your spirit doesn't groove with your flesh. That's why your spirit doesn't groove with the world meaning the world system, the world's direction, the politics, the, 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 the distractions, the lusts, all those things, your spirit does not have a connection to it. It can't. If it does, then it proves you're not his, which is what he's going to later talk about. And everyone, know, uh, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So then he says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. That's true. Sin is lawlessness whether you know you're breaking the law or not, right? A sin means you're just missing the mark whether you know you're actually missing the mark based upon a written reality. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in Jesus there is no sin, right? 
And he says, no one who abides in him sins. Right? That's logical, but people choke on it. No one who lives in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. It's logical though. If you're made katathion or according to God, or you're a partner to the divine nature, that nature cannot sin because it's made from God. It can't. We cannot sin spiritually, but we, we can only be ignorant and be overcome by the flesh's cleverness, uh, passion, emotions, it's chemicals, mm-hmm. basically, to sin. That's how we lose. The flesh feels the lusts, and if you don't think spiritually, it will go quickly, as quick as it can to get what it wants, or do what it wants, or say what it wants, or experience what it wants. And you, your job is to present the body as a living sacrifice, right? To so stop it, pull it back, and present it back to God as holy and living as opposed to dead and unholy because the body is dead and unholy. But he says, present it living and holy. So he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous in the exact same way that Jesus or he is righteous, right? That's the reason why. If Jesus is perfectly righteous, that's why you've died with him and you live with him. This is, pick this because it goes with Romans 6 from last week. It's the basis of it. It's the clearer teaching. This is as clear as it gets, right? And it's going to get even clearer. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. You say, of the devil. I mean, you're born from the devil. No, that means you're, uh, the devil's fallen spirit and your fallen spirit are of like fallen nature. Therefore, you are most like the devil since he is the God of this world and has made the world to work the way his spirit likes this world to work. Therefore, your spirit connects to that if it's fallen. And your flesh connects to it now. So why does he in John actually call them, call him their father when he says you're doing the works of your father? Because they are of the same quality of Satan. He said, I know you're Abraham's children. You know, Abraham's actual seed. But you do the deeds of the devil. This Abraham did not do. So it's the deeds. In other words, their life practices are like the devil's life practices. Therefore, they're in a way his children. Because they follow after God is the, uh, Satan is the God of this world. So his world system, including the Pharisaical and Sadduceical system, which would have been his system, not God's system, they followed that. And because of that, they became his children or his disciples, if you will. So from a, from a following standpoint, in the same way that we become Abraham's children because we walk by faith. Well, would it be similar to like when Paul said, calls them his children in the faith? He... Yes, similar to that. But not, yeah, in the same way that Abraham, we're called Abraham's children in the faith because right. of we walk by faith. It's the same kind of idea. It's just the, the way people thought back then about 
relationships. And Jesus was referring to that reality. We don't use that so much now, you know. So he says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And he says, the son of, of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And that's when he says in verse nine, no one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Why don't I practice sin? Because his seed, his sperma, abides in him and he cannot sin. (laughs) Just in case you missed it up above. Why can he not sin? Because he is born of God. Literally repeats it, repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. If you are born of God, it is equal to being born of God's sperm. Now, a man's sperm has his DNA. Now, that's why if, if you want to know God is our father and he says we're of his sperm. That's why Peter says we're a partner in his divine nature. That's why Ephesians, Second uh, Peter, and that's why Ephesians says you're created kata theon according to God in the same way that all my children are created kata greg, right? And kata beth. But the problem is God didn't have a wife. So we're of sperm. So who's the mother that we were born from? In Galatians chapter four, he says, heaven is our mother. Why? Because heaven is the womb from where we came. Heaven is the womb from where we came. That is to say, God made us new there. He placed us here by the Holy Spirit. We know that from Titus three. But the Holy Spirit was the deliverer, if you will, of the newly created person. We're circumcised apart. He takes the old man out. He puts the new person in. And the transaction of salvation has taken place. The transaction of salvation that results in eternal life. So that's why he says, I want to discuss eternal life with you. How did you get it? What does it mean? It means that you are righteous, pure as he is pure, righteous as he is righteous, sinless as he is sinless, You cannot sin. It is impossible if you're born of God to sin. Why? Because you are born of his sperm. Thus you bear his DNA and your mother is heaven. That's good news. Right? I wonder what that moment was like for John when he wrote that. I bet John was reading that going, he's probably stoked up. (laughs) Like when the Holy Spirit moved him to write, like because his sperm abides in him, he'd be like, what? Like for a minute. Right. Probably a funny moment. (laughs) And then he even goes on to say a little bit more clear, right? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Mm -hmm. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Why? Because we're righteous as he is righteous. Therefore, the spirit is going to practice it. And I like the way, why he says we're going to practice it because it's a broken rhythm. Right? Maturity starts out with less practice of righteousness and holiness until you mature and walk more righteous and holy and good. Right. So it starts off weak and it ends up strong, but it's not because you're weak. It's just because you're ignorant, you're un, unrefined and immature Uh, from a spiritual intellectual position. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, right? By these, 
glory and excellence. We have escaped, you know, he, we become partners of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. So that's Second Peter, you know, 1, 3, and 4. So you're, you're looking at that same reality mentioned, you know, here. The reality is we are new. We have life. And it's because God has made us from his own DNA. And I always talk about he's made us from his DNA. The reason I say this is because right here he says he made us from his sperm. It's a, it, it doesn't say soma. That would be interesting. He doesn't say soma because soma is embryo, right? Soma requires an egg and a sperm. With Jesus, he says he made, behold, a soma you prepared for me. He didn't say, behold, a sperm you prepared for me and then Mary's egg took over. Jesus didn't get into the sperm and then Mary's egg was half of him and every he's half sinful and half righteous, you know, Part of the, the DNA structure of God was there. No, no, he was fully body. Both sperm and egg were made into an embryo and then Yahweh or, you know, the word got into that and then that was delivered to Mary. We're not called a soma, we're called a sperma because there is no mom but heaven. So 100% of our DNA is of the father. 100%. So in Hebrew, the word body is soma. soma. It's that, that woman's store, soma, you know? That's uh, the Greek word, same word, S-O-M-A. So uh, in here, it's sperma. And the two um, verbs are perfect tense. Yeah, that. right, they're perfect so tense. He cannot see you, right. I was just trying to keep it simple, but yes, thank you. They're both perfect tense verbs. Yeah, huh? I've always been encouraged from yeah. the top. Perfect tense means it's a completed action that's not repeated. Be the, uh, like if you say, um, I, um, I cleaned out the chicken house, right? That's something we repeat uh, and, and that you can repeat over and over. And it's more of an aorist tense, past tense. But if I say, I blew up the chicken house <laughs> and it exploded into a million pieces, you say, that's kind of a one-time act, you know? You can't blow it up again I incinerated it. So that's perfect tense, right? So if, you, if you're made new, it's perfect tense. It can't happen again. That's why when people say, well, you know, you can lose your salvation. You didn't do anything to get it except believe in God. Did, he gave you the eternal life by making you of his own divine nature from his own sperm, if you will, the reason why God uses that term is because that is such a, a, a perfect representation of the foundation of the quality of our spirit and the quality of our future body. Because the body will be of the exact same essence as the spirit. It'll just be of a different material. Thus, it's an upgrade. It's leather seats and electric windows and <laughs> air conditioning. In other words, it, 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 you, you can taste better, you feel better, you whatever. There's something better about having the physical body. Right? So it's an upgrade. It's the luxury package of the eternal life. <laughs> the, lim- the limited edition. Instead of the ego. Yeah. Yeah, right. Limited time only. So, and it is for a limited time only. He says, nor the one... We know who the children of God and the children of the devil are because you would practice righteousness, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
because love has been poured out into our heart. The law of God has been written onto our heart. Those two things were created in the very fabric of essence of his righteousness. Were very created in the very fabric of his love. Does it say the essence of his love? Because his nature is our basis. Now, what he hasn't given us is the full spectrum of his power, right? We don't have almighty power. We can't know everything and be everywhere and all that. But what he has done is he's given us the attributes or the essence of his DNA that make us perfect children, righteousness, purity, eternality, blamelessness, perfection, uh, all those things, you know, holiness. We, ha- we share in his holiness. We share in his righteousness. We share in his perfection. You know, as Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no way enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 20, right? And he says, unless you are perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you will not get in, right? So what he was doing is pointing to this, that those two Realities. He was saying, you have to be born from above. You have to be made new. This is the reality. If you don't see yourself as this way, you won't take the fight with your flesh serious. You won't understand that you really are the powerful one, which is why in John 5, he says, how do we overcome the world? You know, our faith. It's your belief in this truth that will give you the power to hold the flesh, stop it from moving forward and subdue it or subject it to Christ, presented as a offering. He says, verse 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's true. They did hear that from the beginning of his ministry in John 13, right? Uh, 36 through, what, 33 to 36, that they would love one another as he loved them. It says, not as Cain who was of the death of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. People who, this is John 3, they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People who have evil deeds cannot stand people who do what's right. Whether they're bad people or religious people, they can't stand. Right to us isn't laws. Right to us is the Christ. It's the good news, the gospel. Because as I talked last night, again, sort of a mind-blown moment, you don't go to hell for, for being homosexual or doing lying or whatever. You go to hell because you don't put your faith in God's Messiah that he sent to die and that he raised him and he made him Lord. You don't put your faith in that for your salvation. You don't believe what he believes. That's what sends a person to hell. Now, the, the, the intensity of hell will be based upon your transgressions and your sins. But you don't go to hell for those things. You're born with a ticket to hell with, before you've done anything, you know, if you will. It, it, it's only the point where God begins to apply that and impute that to you, right? But... When you actually, you know, start, when you're sinning, you're building up now wrath. You're storing up wrath. Once you get to that, you know, you're, you're conscious, you're moving on, you're a little baby, you've grown up, and now you're, you're storing it because now you're, you're doing it intellectually, you're doing it willfully against the Creator. And now you start storing. So intensity of hell intensifies based upon your deeds without question. But that's not why you go. You go because you reject the truth of the Messiah. That's why you go. That's what Jesus taught over and over and over. 
You don't go because you're not rejected to hell because of deeds. You're rejected to hell because you don't believe. And he says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you, verse 13. Now, of course, Jesus said this in John you know, 15 and John 14, John 13. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Notice he says we love the brethren, not the world. Jesus said, I do not pray on behalf of the world in John 17, but on behalf of those you have left me, right? The ones that we're unified with. Our love isn't for the world. He even said it in John, oh, we just love everybody. No, we don't. You show love to everybody, but you don't love everybody. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There's a, there's a movement in, in, in a lot of the religious circles now. Oh, we just love everybody. We just call it to love everybody. You know, we just love, we just love, love Hitler, love whatever. All these people say stupid stuff. No, you don't. If you do, you're jacked. If you actually love Hitler, you actually love these people who are evil. I just love them. No, you don't. That You're just speaking something because you think you're supposed to say it. If you're a child of God, you hate these people as God hates them. But you show them love as God shows them love because Jesus will be the one to judge them on this earth. But you hate them as he hates them, but you show them love as he shows them love. You can't truly love someone who is of the dispens- the, uh, the, the, the um, spiritual integrity of Satan. I love them. How can you love them? It's impossible. There's no way the Spirit of God in you will love someone's spirit who is that who is a child of the devil. It's not consistent. Now, you may love people on the earth because there's certain human attributes about them you like. But there's a point where if you build a relationship with them, you will no longer like them because the, the more you try to integrate into life with them, you can't. Because you're righteous, they're not. You're good, they're not. You know God, they don't. And eventually their evil will be exposed. They will begin to hate you and you will no longer have a relationship with them. Just the way it goes. doesn't matter how, how hard you try, you cannot build a relationship that's meaningful with a pagan. You can't do it. You can only build a peripheral one. But I say a contextual friendship, like around motocross or basketball or a football game or something like that. You can have contextual friendships that are pagan or weak friendships, but you cannot have a meaningful relationship with a pagan. So he says, uh, da, 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 where are we at? Verse 15? Huh? 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for who? The brethren. In, in you know this, in religious circles, they often will... Think everything is ministry. Everything is not serving the Lord. Everything is serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord starts with managing your own flesh. This is what serving the Lord looks like, right? First, loving yourself by restricting it from sin and presenting it to God. That's step one. If you have a wife, then it's helping her do the same. You're managing her, washing her with the word so she can walk in newness of life and present herself. Thirdly, if you have kids, then it's doing the same to them. 
helping them walk in newness of life, sharing the gospel, building them up. That's the third. That, that's where you start. You don't go outside of that first, right? So they're the brethren that you love the most. And if they're not saved, then you, you diligently evangelize them until they are, right? You teach them the truth and let God do his work. Then you love the actual brethren outside of you. You look around for their needs spiritually, financially, physically, encouragement, service, whatever it is. And you seek to love the brethren. When pagans come in, they should look at us and be jealous because of the love that's shared amongst the brethren. So often, it's the brethren who are all putting out, they have all these needs, all this need for care, and all the money's going out to somewhere else. All the needs are going out somewhere else. All the service is going out to somewhere else. When it should be that the brethren's love is so rich and so, in a way, um, godly selfish, as to say, we're, our love is toward each other, primarily. That when the world looks in, they want it. But they can't have it. They can only get a taste here and there, right? They can get the gospel, but they can't get the love that I would share with a brother. They can't get that kind of service, that kind of monetary help. They can't get that kind of um, encouragement because they don't have the spirit of God in them. They're not new creations. The world should look in and see jealousy in the same way that if a stranger comes to your home to have dinner with you or, or an acquaintance, they should see your home and the love shared between you and your wife and you and your kids and the love you share and how you care for one another when, you, when a stranger's there. They should say, wow, I wish I got served like that. I wish I was loved the way they love each other. They should feel less loved in my home than the way we love each other when they come here. Because the love in the home is where it starts. That's, that's the greatest love. And then outside of that is, you know, you, you can try, but you can't, you can only spread love so thin before love runs out, right? It's like money. You have a hundred bucks. You can only put so much and then eventually you have no money. Well, your love can run out because you simply don't have the time. You don't have the words. You don't have the, you know, money. You don't have the, um, uh, the, 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 the context to do it. Right? Eventually, you run out of the ability to love. I can only meet, I can't meet with more than one person, at, you know, more, unless a couple. I can't meet with that many people to do an intricate de- detail of teaching them through the truth more than a few at a time, right? I, I, I run out. So my love is restricted to the ones who are, are seeking it. So the point is, is the body, though, is who I'm going to love first. I'm not going to go, yeah, okay, you guys or the cash cow, and we're always looking outside of you. It's like, no, you're the guys that need the love, the encouragement, the service, and loving each other. It has to be introspective because that is the, that is the nature of the body of Christ. That's what heaven is going to be like. Heaven's not going to look to hell <laughs> in order to minister. It's going to be heaven in heaven, right? And we're supposed to be a representative of heaven on earth where this body is uniquely blessed by each other in the gifts and the service and and the support that we have to offer one another. And so that's important. When you're considering doing something, if you have something to do as a serving the Lord concept, quote unquote, your first thought should be, how can I do that toward the brethren, not toward the world? There's definitely, hey, evangelize, all that. But you can't, 
neglect the body of Christ for the sake of the flashier looking thing of toward the world. Okay? So you have to balance out your love and how that functions and maturing because your gifts are most functioned toward the body of Christ and matured in the body of Christ as Ephesians 4 talks about, right? Here, it's toward the body of Christ, the brethren, the actual brethren. Now in the book of Hebrews, he uses brethren in a technical national sense, but here he's using it in a spiritual sense. Spiritual brethren. And that's why he says the very next thing. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't speak. It just means that if you're going to speak, follow through with it or speak afterward. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we assure our hearts before him. We will. If you walk out love and righteousness, you assure your hearts. That's why I told that person earlier we were discussing, prove your salvation. Prove it to yourself. So I said, prove it to you. If, if you don't see it in your own life, you have to prove, assure to you Sure, your own heart by your act of right, acts of righteousness and acts of love in pursuit of knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, assure to yourself that you are His. Not because you said something, not because you spoke, but because you live for Him, right? Not because you go to church, but because you actually have a life that's relating to Him on a daily basis. Then he says this, uh, verse 19, we will know by this that we are, the, uh, uh, we are of the truth and we will assure our hearts before him in whatever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts or our heart and knows all things. And what he means by this is our new heart will condemn us when we don't present our body as a living sacrifice. Our spirit knows and our spirit will begin to wag its finger at us, and we will feel what? Unsaved. And what he says is, don't worry about when you feel that way because God is greater than your own heart wagging its finger against you. (laughs) Right? Because sometimes, certainly in the early days, when you're in the Romans 7 early days, when uh, the law of sin is reigning in the flesh and is beating up your spirit and you're going, oh, tormented man that I am. You know, uh, in those days, your heart can do a lot of finger wagging. And God says, don't worry. God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's true, right? If our heart doesn't condemn us, it means we're actually doing what he said up here. We're walking out faith and love and truth and therefore our hearts are not condemning us because we have this confidence right in our in our walk we see our walk our hearts thumbs up we're feeling good so he says this 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It's so funny when people say in the early part of John, it's like, we keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? Verse 23. There's two of them. One of them saves and one of them guides life. One was from God and one is from Jesus. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, who is the anointed one the Christ and the one that Jesus gave in John 13 and love one another just as he commanded us. How did he command us? Love one another as I have loved you. Talking to the brethren. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he and he in him. Now, this is John 17. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And I believe that's a little s there. That's why in verse chapter four, verse one, he immediately goes into an evil spirit as opposed to a good spirit, right? So you don't think that's the Holy Spirit? No, no, because it's our spirit is the one he gave to us, the new one, the one of Ezekiel chapter thirty-six, verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. The new spirit I will place within you. That's what he's talking about right here. The little s. There's a person, right? He gave us a spirit, a new one. He's also given us the Holy Spirit as our, as our helper. Yep. Well, both will be true, but there's, this is definitely not talking about the Holy Spirit here. Because he's talking about the spirit whom he has given to us, which is, I think, our individual spirit which is the way he writes it, say, in Galatians and whatnot, which is the spirit as the basis of the new man that we are as a spirit being. Um, he covers his basis, basically, here. It would also be a logical conclusion to the previous discussion of right. his seed, him right. biting in us, his seed in right. us. Like spirit being like placed in us would be the seed placed in us, a spiritual seed being born of him, so forth and so on. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, again, chapter 4 says the same thing and so forth and so on. He's just saying, he's just continuing the same discussion. But does anybody have any questions on that? Nay. It's clear as... Glorious heavenly water. All right. Well, that was what I wanted to cover tonight because we went through Romans 6 and it's so lovely and so wonderfully said. First John is just another Romans 6, but with a little bit more emphasis on the foundational aspects of what it means to die with him and to live with him, where Romans 6 speaks more in the beginning about his death and how the death, us dying with him, means that we cannot sin. This takes it from the opposite angle. And it says, you cannot sin because you're born of his sperm. Romans 6 says you cannot sin because you died to sin and now you're a slave of righteousness, right? Why? Because you've been risen with him. So 
But how did God raise us? Well, he made a God sperm and he placed it as a spiritual being and placed it in the body and took out the old man. And that's the new us. The trans, that's why salvation has to happen in the earth. All right, our, our, the, the, the mimicking of our old spirit, in other words, it looks, our new spirit looks like the old spirit, looks like us. And it will have the memory and the understanding of the previous us. So it, the way you get a matrix download of your history from your brain so you understand who you are or who you were. And now you have to fight against that previous person, this new creation does, in order to prove that you are his child, you were born of his seed, you're a new creation, you're a partner of the divine nature, and you know, you're a glorious child of God. That's why there's a proving. All right, let's pray. We'll end our time.